There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, this week, the Kermode on Film podcast is another extended interview from the most recent online MK3D show. As you'll probably know, the MK3D shows I usually do live on stage at the BFI South Bank, but during the recent lockdown, we've moved them online. If you want to watch the show, just go to YouTube and put in MK3D or go to YouTube and search for the BFI channel. It's on the BFI channel on YouTube. Now, that version of the show is only an hour long, and the show are absolutely guest-packed. In the most recent show, we had Faisal Belifa and Roxanne Scrimshaw, the creators of Lynn and Lucy. We had one-man film industry, Noel Clark, and we spoke to Sam Riley about his current release, Radioactive. But the show also featured the extraordinary Catelyn Moran, who is our guest on this week's edition of Kermod on Film. I spoke to Catelyn about her days breaking through as a young journalist, about becoming a best-selling author, and now writing the screenplay to the new film How to Build a Girl, based on her own semi-autobiographical novel. We'll speak to Catelyn in just a moment, but first, here's the trailer for How to Build a Girl. How much longer am I going to have to be here? I need your help. I want to burn. I want to explode. I want to have sexual intercourse. Someone who has a car. What's a car? Stop moping. Try this. They're looking for writers to be a rock critic. I'm Johanna Morgan. I have an interview for the job. Did you think my writing was good? It's not really us. Not cool. Darling, rooms like that need girls like you. Come on, let's go! Good God, it's a child catcher. Johanna Morgan is dead. This is the legendary Dolly Wilde. Last night, rock and roll meant nothing to me. By midnight, it was the most important thing in the world. Darling, have you ever done an interview before? I've never done anything before. These are the places you come where you can dance and scream and be with your own kind, where everything is possible. This is Dolly Wild. She's trouble. Yes, I am trouble. The thing about crossing over to the dark side is that once you're there, it doesn't feel dark at all. My question to you, Johanna, is when did you lose your mind? What do you do when you build yourself, only to realise you built yourself with the wrong things? You rip it up and start again. This we would like to run in the next issue. Thank you. Thank you very much, ma'am. 
are you in fact pretending to be Elvis right now? Catelyn Moran, welcome to the virtual MK3D, which has now moved online for the foreseeable future. How the hell are you? I am perky. I am one of the annoying people who, during lockdown, um, hasn't put on their Corona Stone, uh, but was faithfully doing the Joe Wicks workout every day, and I've discovered abs. Uh, so yeah, I'm. I'm I mean, really, for preference, I'd like to be doing this almost naked, uh, showing off the severe bodywork that I've been doing for the last two months. But I suspect we probably all would prefer me not to. Okay, just forgive me. What is the the Joe the Joe Wicks workout? What is you, that? Are you not part of the Joe Wicks phenomenon? I'm not. No, I mean I'm 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 just dragging my way out the fifties. Are the other Beatles still together? I'm I, I lose track. <laughs> no, the struggle still continues. Uh, but okay. uh, but the, the the newest uh, development is that Joe Wicks, an, an amiable, uh, long haired lunk. Um, from okay. South England, uh, every morning does PE lessons online for kids um, since they've all been homeschooled in order to keep the nation fit. Wow. And so I started doing these PE lessons for kids and uh, spent the first one just going, this screaming, this is easy, this is so easy. And then the next day came down with what I thought was the coronavirus because I was in so much pain <laughs> and I had such a sore throat from the screaming that I was absolutely convinced that I must have come down with the virus. But it was simply the after effects of this apparently easy workout. But um, if you stick to them, they do work. And I'm now obsessed with them. He looks quite a lot like Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, but okay. doing ab work. So that's, okay. that's an amazing crossover for me. That's how I can get into physical exercise my only version of that because i was i was absolutely rubbish at sport i was very good at cross-country running because i always thought that was just organized running away and that was the thing that i could do it's an escape yeah 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 and then some years later a bunch of friends of mine they were doing a 10k thing and um and they all went oh don't ask mark because he couldn't do it because he's so unfit and i was so annoyed i went i could do 10k and they went no you couldn't i went yeah i could and they went, oh, you have to train. I went, don't be stupid. If a bear was chasing you, you wouldn't have to train. You'd just run, right? So I turned up on the morning of it. I had a pair of flip-flops, and I didn't even have running shoes. And I, <laughs> and I, and I did the 10K in uh, you know, sort of sandal flip-flops, and I got to the end of it about an hour and something. wasn't a bad time. And uh, I went, yeah, you see? And then I went to the pub, and I had a few pints of Stella, and I felt like cock of the north. Next morning, I couldn't walk. Next morning, I was... Just for a week afterwards, I was completely lame. But I, it proved a point. Well, for starters, I would imagine that if you're running for 10K in a pair of cheap plastic flip-flops, did they not at some point melt from the friction and just merge with your foot into some kind of flip-flop hoof? I mean, they, they fell apart. They fell apart, but, but they did get me the 10K. And as I said, you know, you know, if you had been chased by a wild animal, you wouldn't go, excuse me, I've just got to do some stretches and warm up. Just, just you know, just just hold there for a moment. Anyway. It's reminding me of when Jedward uh, from The X Factor, the uh, the uh, the blonde twins who... Uh, who I remember who Jedward are. I remember that. <laughs> yes, I didn't know how much backstory I had to do that. No, um, thank they, you. Were, they were doing promo in New York and they saw the London Marathon happening outside their hotel. So they just left the hotel and just did the marathon and then just tweeted pictures of themselves doing it. <laughs> formally joined it and did 26.6 miles just because they're quite they've got kind of adhd problems and they were just like yeah just do a marathon before we go and do some more interviews so you they, were reminding me of jedward today that was something i didn't expect to say look i've kind of got this the sort of my jedward hair all right that's because they they had a big they had like big pointy big pointy quiff didn't they yeah. anyways yeah. so uh Catelyn, um you and i have our paths first crossed many many years ago when we were both on uh, on radio while well, you're you're hiding your your head already here's what i remember i was doing the radcliffe show up in manchester and they said oh we've got this you know this hip young gunslinger and uh, and you came on the radio and uh, and you were being you know smart and sharp and everything and i think you must have been on for less than five minutes and you said oh it's a fucking mess 
and I could, and everyone, and I thought, that's interesting. I wonder if you're allowed to do that. It turned out you weren't. Um, since then, you've had this, you know, this absolutely stellar career. Do you remember that? Do you remember I, that meeting? I do. I felt deep shame afterwards. I mean, this, this is the problem <laughs> with, you know, the problem with my career at that point is that, like, if you bring a child into an adult environment, <laughs> you know, I was 16. Uh, I was, I, you know, I... Were you I was 16? 20, that you, would let, you were really 16? I was wow. 16. I wanted to promote my first book, a book based on uh, the Chronicles of Narmo, which sold wow. a grand total of 1,600 copies. And I was mainly hat at that point. I was working on the premise that if you wore a big hat, it would make your body look smaller by way of perspective so i was primarily someone whose personality was a hat um and swearing uh, on live radio and making the grown-ups look really really worried <laughs> i do, i mean i i do remember it. you absolutely uh, you absolutely made an impression and as a result of that while i was watching uh, the film yesterday which i really really enjoyed and uh, part of me was trying to do that thing about pick apart fact and fiction because obviously you know it's a kind of strange so Tell me how much of what happens in the film is inspired by actual stuff that actually happened and how much of it is invention. It's funny because like, I think when people watch it, the bits that they would think were true and things that happened were things that didn't actually happen and things okay. that you would go, no one would do that. That's stuff that happened. So it's okay. about 80% of it is, is definitely stuff that happened. So for instance, kind of her inciting incident that makes her sort of realise that she's sort of got to get out there. And the first time she tries to get out of Wolverhampton and it fails, she uh, reads out a poem that is absolutely terrible um, yeah. on, on live TV. She's won this competition and uh, and just manages that it's a fucking mess. Uh, she, she makes total hash of it. And we have Chris O'Dowd looking absolutely agonised all the way through it as the yeah. TV presenter. That happened to me. That was uh, the reason why generally I don't do live radio or TV is I had a, a, an incident so traumatic on live radio, which wasn't even the one that you were there for. It was far more traumatic. The first time I went on live radio, it was... Uh, Beacon Radio, Wolverhampton's local radio station, and it was around the time that uh, German shepherds and Dobermans and Rottweilers were being uh, spoken of as devil dogs, and there was going oh, right, yeah. to to stop people having them as pets. And I had a German shepherd that my dad had got from a dodgy policeman for free in the pub in exchange for a bag of gravel, and she was my pet, and I loved her. And uh, and they were talking about saying you couldn't have these as pets. So I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna ring the phone in that they're having about these dogs and just say how much I love my dog. So I rang in, I waited for ages, and then I finally got on, and they were like, Katie. So I was called Katie at that point. Katie from Wolverhampton, what, what's your opinion on dogs? And I was like, I'd be so upset if they took my dog away. I love my dog. We're a gang. We're like Shaggy and Scooby. Scooby Dooby Doo! Um, and just howled the word Scooby Dooby Doo for quite a long time. And they just cut me off. And unfortunately, I had been waiting for so long to go on the radio show that my dad had gone and gathered all of the neighbours in our street outside our house and put the radio on in his car on our driveway. So the entire street were outside waiting to listen to my live radio debut, uh, which then obviously crashed and burned. And so I put the phone down and opened the front door and pretty much all my street was standing outside going, that wasn't good. That wasn't good. Um, and that, <laughs> that burnt me so badly that I now generally don't do radio and TV because I'm so scared that I might say Scooby Dooby Doo and get cut off by Stephen Rhodes, presenter of Beacon Radio's phone in, in it's, it's fantastic that you still remember the details. My first radio broadcast was was on LBC and it was eight o'clock in the morning and it was so terrible that afterwards I this is the days before mobile phones, I rushed to the mobile to the phone box to phone my mum, you know, five P ten P and my mum, whose whose job it is to tell you that you're brilliant, answered the phone and I said, Did you hear it? She went, Yeah. And I said, I said, How was it? And she said, and I quote, the signal was very strong. 
oh, that's a bad note. Yeah. Um, was it bad? Did you do a swear? Did you howl? <laughs> I didn't do as well. I thought that what would happen is you'd go into the radio station and then be, there'd be like a green room and preparation and everyone would discuss it. I didn't realise that what happened is you go in the door and you're on air. I, oh. I, I, I literally didn't, I didn't understand. So I just went, blah, 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 and I just talked, I, I didn't do a swear. I just talked garbage, really fast garbage for about five minutes. It was, just sounded like somebody having an attack. It was, you know. this, is, this is something that I keep sort of coming back to in my writing that just like when you're a teenager, you're a kid and you just don't know. And so yeah. just a series of mistakes. Like I remember when I went into the news quiz on Radio 4 and I just never listened to Radio 4. So they'd ask me on and I was like, Alan Corrin was on it. And I loved Alan Corrin. So I was like, it's a chance to meet Alan Corrin. It was in the time you can still smoke in the studio. So we were just smoking all the way through it. The theme tune started. I don't know if you know the theme tune to the news quiz, but it's terrifying. It just sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a million angry bees are attacking the news. And it's like, and it's it's a music that says you're going to be really clever and know a lot of stuff now. <laughs> like the first question to me was about something that had happened in Afghanistan, and I was like, I actually know nothing about Afghanistan, but I can triangulate this into a story that I read in OK this week about Big Brother star Jade Goody. <laughs> you can just see Sandy Toxic sitting there going, Radio Four's just not going to get this. And afterwards, Alan Corrin very kindly took me to one side and gave notes. And just went you kind of have to prepare for these things and i didn't know i just thought everybody turned up i think it's the same way like a lot of people think you know with films like the actors just turn up and just kind of make it up as they go along like you don't know that yeah. generally you're supposed to prepare for these things so the story um in the film follows our heroine to the hallowed offices of the nme now you and i were sort of slightly different uh, periods um, I mean, I had the same thing about writing for the enemy to start out. And I, that was the point which I thought I've arrived. I got a film review written in the NM, printed in the enemy. I think it was like 12 quid or something. Before that, I'd had a letter printed in the enemy, which really made me think I'm actually properly a journalist. But um, tell us about that atmosphere of going into the enemy office, because the way it's portrayed in the film is that basically they all take one look at the character of Phil and just turn their noses up because they're all a bunch of, well, you you tell the story. Yes. Well, in the well, in reality, I had written. So I'd written, already written this children's book uh, that had been published when I was sixteen, and so I wrote. I'd written a couple of letters again that had been published on the letters page, and sort of they'd done replies, just sort of saying, "Oh, you seem fabulous." So I was like, "Wow, I'm in here." Um, so when the book was published, I was like, "Well, I need to uh, earn more money because apparently you don't earn that much from uh, writing books." I found out after I'd written it, um, and uh, and I was interviewed when the book came out uh, by Valerie Grove from the Sunday Times, and I was like, "How do you earn money from being a writer?" Valerie because I got a thousand pounds for this book and that's not going to bail out my family for the rest of our lives she was like you need to be a journalist darling um, and as, as you know in those days the music press was the place where you could go if you were working class if you didn't have any contacts like if you didn't need to have gone to Cambridge you didn't need to have a degree if you could write and you sent it in they would pay you from day one to write and to learn how to write and improve on the job and that's one of the saddest things about the industry people have not got that in anymore uh, there isn't a way for a new generation to get paid you can blog but you won't get paid for it um, so so yeah so I went in I was I was 16 Again, I was wearing a hat. Uh, the hat was a very constant uh, motif. And I brought with me, I'd read recently, because I read every book in our local library, so I got to the point where I'd read Maureen Lipman's autobiography, um, You Got an Ology, uh, where she talks about her... <laughs> And she was, her whole thing was that she always brought gifts for everyone. Like kind of whenever you went anywhere, whenever you were in a, went for an audition or kind of you went for lunch to talk about a project, you took a gift. So I was like, you've got to take a gift. So the day before I went down to Melody Maker, which is what I work for, the, 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 hip, the hippest magazine in town, I stayed up all night making a huge cream cake. I made a beautiful lemon sponge. I got fresh cream. I whipped up the cream. I put lemon peel into it. And then uh, I, we didn't have any Tupperware in those days because uh, we were poor. But what I had was a very small suitcase that I bought at a jumble sale that didn't have a hand. And so I put the cake 
in the suitcase with no handle and I had to carry it like this, like a waiter with a tray, all the way down on the megabus from Wolverhampton to London and then walked all the way from Euston Station to the South Bank, which is where Melody Maker was. And they were like, then sort of showing up to the top floor and all these cool guys were hanging around smoking. And I was like, hello, I'm, I'm Catelyn Moran. You liked my reviews. I've come down to talk to you and I brought you all a gift. And I opened up the suitcase and inside was the cake. But it had been a very hot day and I'd been walking for a long time. So the cream had gone entirely rancid. So when I opened up, the suitcase, the smell that hit everyone was basically a vomit. And it looked like I had turned up in, a child had turned up in a hat and had brought them a suitcase full of vomit. Uh, <laughs> but I think they took that as a rock and roll kind of thing. They're like, yeah, you're a bit edgy, you're a bit cool. Uh, so uh, they didn't eat the cake, uh, but they did offer me a job. So uh, so I was freelance and you'd get £28.92 pence to go and review gigs. And for a while I was working quite a cool scam where I'd go and review a band and I'd review the support band and the headliner separately and file two separate reviews. So I'd get double the money because I just needed to earn the dollar. And uh, when they realized that I was working a bit of a scam, then they had to explain that normally you don't review the support band separately. Um, but no, it was a weird atmosphere to be in. That was where I experienced my first um, instance of sexual harassment, um, where I, I had been working there for a while and I felt that I should have a promotion. Um, and so I went, I feel like I should do a cover feature now because I'd also started working for The Times and I was a rock critic for The Times at this point. But I still... You, the young, you were the youngest... Um, you were something like you were the youngest on staff at the time. Yes. Um, I'd won... Uh, so the, with the year I was 16 was quite a big year, so my book was published. I started freelancing for Melody Maker, and then I won the Observer Young Reporter of the Year competition, and they gave me a column for six weeks over summer. And they didn't publish the last one. They said that they didn't have space for it. And I was like, I need the money. I promised to buy my brother a bunk bed because he was sleeping on a, a piece of foam rubber on the floor at the time. So I just went to the news agents, looked at the newspapers, saw the Times copied down their fax number and sent that last column to the Times from their fax machine in the newsagents. And by the time I got back home, they'd rung the house and said, we will give you a column. And at the time, I didn't realise that's not normally how you get a job on a newspaper. And years later, I worked out that the reason that The Observer hadn't published that last column was because the war in Iraq had broken out. So understandably, they had <laughs> had to make space for a gigantic war rather than my fluffy column. Um, so yes, yeah, so I started working for The Times and I was interviewing bands for The Times. So I was like, why am I not getting this kind of work at Melody Maker? So I was like, I think I should have a cover feature. And a, a, a editor there um, said, come and sit on my knee and let's talk about this. And I looked around the room and like sort of all the men were just sort of staring at me and I couldn't work out because a year before I'd been being chased across wasteland by yobs who were shouting you fat lesbian at me and throwing gravel at me and I couldn't work out if going from having gravel thrown at you by boys to now being sexually ejectified by a man was actually a promotion like it felt like it maybe I'd gone up a bit like kind of like this was like you know kind of I was now attractive enough to be sexually ejectified and to sit on someone's knee so I, I didn't know what to do and then I just went and, and this is the scenes in the film and I just in the end I just did what I would do to my brothers if they were doing something wrong. I just slammed myself down on his lap and just bounced up and down and going, well, I don't know why I've got to sit on your lap to talk about work because none of the men are. They're all using chairs. But if this is what you want, then this is what I'll do. And uh, completely cut off the circulation in his legs. Uh, and then he went, oh, okay, you can have the front cover. That's fine. So that was how, that was the day I battled sexual harassment and won. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you look at the film, I mean, do you, do you look at it and think that is a document of my life or do you look at it and think that's that's a that's you know that's something that I've created which is inspired I mean because I I mean I really enjoyed it I thought incidentally tell us about the 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 the, the lead actor the person that plays the character that is effectively you because that is a 
genius piece of casting. And that must have been, there must have been, you know, punched fists in the air at the moment that that all happened. Oh God, yeah. So we, so we, when I was, so I spent a long time um, in development with Monumental with the movie because I just didn't know how to write a movie. I didn't know how to use the software. I literally didn't know anything at all and I wrote a first draft of it and um, I just knew it was terrible and I showed it to my friend John Niven uh, who, who wrote Kill Your Friends and he's also a screenwriter and I was like I don't know why this is bad why is this bad and he went he sort of flicked through it and went well babe like the characters are really funny the dialogue's really funny but nothing's happened like a film is something happens in a scene and then that leads to something else and something else things need to happen and your, your people have just been talking in a room for, for 20 minutes and it's funny but it's things have got to happen and I was like this is genuinely new information things happen in movies okay so you can see the development process took a long time because I had to learn about plot and narrative and structure um but uh but what I just I, say I've seen plenty of films by people who haven't done any of those and uh, and would be seriously improved by just being taken aside by your friend and saying you know this could be massively improved if something actually happened Sometimes it's the smallest pieces of information that change your life. I can remember when I was 16, my friend Matt telling me, don't be a dick. And like, that was genuinely revelatory to me. I was like, oh my God, that is really important advice. Yeah, generally, in most situations, you have a binary choice, dick or not dick. I will not be a dick. Um, and that has that changed my life. Similarly, things have to happen in movies. <laughs> so I've been in development for a long time with the, with the movie, and I didn't realise until we got to the finished stage that I'd basically written a movie that was almost uncastable because the lead character based on me is 16 she's in every scene and she has to go from being this sort of fat cheerful clever funny but kind of sort of like sort of unconfident and downtrodden girl in Wolverhampton go to London have this massive transformation turn into this sort of fabulous bitch that's sort of going around killing bands have a second revelation that this isn't going to work for her and then sort of resolve the whole thing and that's you know, we were looking to cast a 16-year-old and probably someone unknown because there aren't that many big girls who, who can act. So we, we scoured the country. We had open auditions. We really wanted to find some new talent. And then we found nothing. We didn't find anyone who could do it. And then uh, luckily our producer, Alison Owen, saw an early preview of Ladybird and saw Beanie Feldstein uh, playing Julie. And she just rang us all up and went, I found her. I found her. This is a girl that can carry a movie. This is a star. And you need to have a star to carry a movie like that. And she was amazing. She was, people were really worried she wouldn't be able to hammer the, Wolverhampton accent. Yeah, I was going to say that. Did you, did, did you, were you concerned at all? Because that's the first thing you think is an American will not be able to hack it. But then, as, as Beanie pointed out with Wisdom Beyond Her Years, like most British actors can't do a Wolvo accent. Like, you know, I, I watch <laughs> Blinders, like kind of I'm from the Midlands and like kind of there, or, you know, and there are so many different sort of dialects within the Midlands. So for any actor, it would be a challenge. So she was like... Yeah, and also... Oh, I mean, Ru Ru Russell Crowe is one of the biggest actors in the world and he can't do any accent, not even his own. I mean, you know... He looks unconvincing as Russell Crowe sometimes, right? It's like, amazing. I've been on chat shows and I'm like, you've lost your motivation. Someone needs to take you to one side and remind you you're Russell Crowe. <laughs> look, look. I might not know much about your car to the unstoppable sex machine or your sultans of ping FC or your fire drill next Tuesday. But <laughs> if you think I'm funny and I can write, then... Then it can't be harder to learn about than the periodic table. And I got a 98% on that test. I only failed on KR. Krypton is my kryptonite. I, I could improvise. Like the hotbed jazzers. Coltrane. Mingus. Give her the manic street preachers. You're doing the manics, Tony. I have just scalped Morrissey. I'm exhausted from the kill. I need to rest in the shade. Besides, you didn't tell me the Manics were in Birmingham. I'm not really feeling regional right now. Try her. Fuck it. Yeah, trial run. 
Johanna, you get to make first contact with the demented Welshman. Man the barricades for us, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Are you in fact being Annie right now? Yes, sir. Enjoy the munificent ten p per word. I will. I am much obliged to you, sir. So, um, so when did you first meet? We went. It was a rainy day, and we went to a restaurant um, in Islington, and that was where we realised there was a bit of a culture clash because the, all the Brits, the, the British production team, and me, um, we were just chatting to her. Um, in our heads, we knew that we were going to give her the role, so we were just getting drunk and kind of you know, she doesn't drink, but we were all just getting drunk and smoking cigarettes and being all like, "Whoa!" Talking about the film and stuff. And uh, apparently, the next day, she just rang her agent up and went, "I don't know if I've got the role or not." Like, kind of, and had to ring the production company. They're like, "Yeah, in Britain, like once we start getting drunk with you, that means." got the role like I don't maybe I should have explained that to you that's kind of that's that's how we accept you into this project and she was amazing she had a folder like this with notes in it she noted it like it was a piece of Shakespeare she was like she went and lived in Wolverhampton for two weeks uh, that was one of the benefits about getting uh, a, an American actor because I don't think any British actor would have agreed to go and live in Wolverhampton for two weeks <laughs> they would have known what that would have entailed but she was like oh it sounds cute um, and went over and fell in love with the place and was just an absolute darling and how much of what she's doing is playing you and how much of it is an invented character? I mean, when you look at that character, is it, is it you? I, uh, we, so we had conversations about this. And at one point I was going to give her all my diaries from that time. Cause I've got all my diaries and I was like, kind of like, if you want to, you can read all my diaries. I'm like, and she was like, yeah, I'd love to. And then I was like, no, that's not fair. Like you have to construct this character. Like kind of, it's not fair for you to have to go and play me. Uh, you know that would be weird um you, you know that's that's your job as an actor that's your thrill to find your way through so i in the end i was like i'm not you can read them afterwards if you want to read the diaries you can read them afterwards but uh but i think it's it's down to you now to create a how you want so um so she, she watched loads of videos of me apparently i used to present a tv show when i was 18 which i was terrible at um and apparently she watched those um she saw me having a fight with noel gallagher on this late night channel four pop show called Naked City and uh and sort of took what she needed from that but um but I allowed const- it it was like it's called how to build a girl it was like well you've got to build this girl like kind of it's nominative determinism <laughs> you need to build her one of the things that um that I identified with uh from the journalist point of view is that there's a there's a whole um story about apologizing to people that you've slagged off and and I had much later I'd had a sort of similar thing about realizing that I, you know, at one point I, I, my entire thing was I was quite good at being nasty about people. And then I started to feel bad about it. Um, tell me about your own, because you I mean, you've got, you've got, I mean, you're incredibly intelligent and you know, you write brilliantly and you, and you have, when you want to got a very sharp tongue. Um, and how do how do you feel about that? That thing about that realizing that maybe, you know, there are things that we've also, I mean, I remember saying that, that, that a film was the, you know, the cinematic equivalent of tertiary syphilis and then bumping into the person that made it and, 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 and thinking, yeah, but then I was, it was, you know, I mean, I was right, but what are you going to do? So where do you stand on that? That's what you said to him. I stand by that as he walked towards <laughs> I just stand by it. I just stand by it. Don't even, don't even talk to me. It was, well, this is, I think it is, this is why I was interested to, to you know to, to write the book and then and then turn it into a movie because I think it is a bit of a, a classic journey and it also has parallels with the modern day which is why I wanted to write it so as a critic so I started out as a critic when I was 16 I often well first of all it's easier to write nasty like kind of the, this, yeah. the jokes are easier it's easier yeah. to make people laugh everybody loves to watch stuff being pulled apart 
And then I think often you go through a process where it feels like a game when you're doing it. You're like, okay, this is the game. Like, you know, we, we say these things, we make all these jokes and like kind of, and the, the act that I'm complicit in is that the artists know that this will happen to them if they put their stuff out in public. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that they're not complicit in it and they haven't agreed to it. I didn't know that, for instance, all of the press clippings are kept in a file for each artist and then they're shown them. I just thought they wouldn't read them or that they knew it was all part of the game. So when I started writing these horrible reviews and then started hearing from first of all their press officers that they'd been really upset and then on a couple of occasions, some band members' mums that they'd been really upset, you start going, oh, hang on, I'm engaged in a game that they don't know about. Like kind of, this isn't fair. And then there was a point where I'd sort of, I wrote a particularly disgusting review of a band called Ned's Atomic Dustbin from the Midlands, where the whole premise was that I was, it was a funeral and their lead singer, John, had died and I was the priest and I was giving the eulogy about what a piece of shit his life had been and how awful his music was and how it had made the world a worse place. And there are like stage directions in it where I'm throwing earth on his dead face and just sort of going, you know, thank God we are now going to be six feet under and you will never make this terrible music again. And, uh, and I read the, the review ran and I sort of turned up and I did make it like, yeah, kind of, this is the game and I did it best. Like, cause I was showing off to the big boys yeah. and uh, but I'd just gone further even than the big boys had cause I was 16 and I didn't know. And the man who's now my husband who also worked at Melody Maker just came up to me and just went, I thought that was a bit off. And that was the first time I'd ever had a note on what I was writing. And I was like, oh my God, this really nice man thinks that that was a bit off. Like maybe, maybe I'm being a dick. Um, and and then I, at the same time, my brother had just formed a band and he'd start playing music. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, all these bands that I'm reviewing, they're just boys like my brother and they just want to make music and make people dance and earn a bit of money. That's not a crime. Why am I, why am I writing more horrible things about them than I am about war criminals? Vastly <laughs> <laughs> out of proportion. I am not smashing fascism. I'm just having a go at a jingly indie band. Like kind of like, this is not a good use of my powers. Um, so I went, I decided to be positive. You know, I just decided like, I think the best thing you can do in the world is if you don't like something, I think now probably the best thing to do is ignore it and go and find a thing that you like and point at that instead. It's like a, mm-hmm. it's far more constructive. People like, particularly now, people like it. People love people who love things. You know, when someone appears like doing a blog or on TV going, this is amazing and I'm going to tell you why. You're like, okay, I'm coming with you. Take me on the journey. Um, and the reason that I was interested in writing that arc for Joanna in the film, sort of like starts off loving music as a fangirl is told that the game is being horrible, has this massive revelation that this is not a good use of your talents and time and then decides to be more positive again. It's because when I started out as a 16-year-old journalist and I had this platform to talk about my opinions, I was the only 16-year-old in the country that could talk publicly with a national platform about my opinions. Now, of course, every 16-year-old in the world has that kind of platform. It's social media. And they go through exactly the same arc. You turn up on social media and you're like all enthusiastic and like, here's a picture of my dog and here's a picture of my breakfast and here's a picture of me looking cute. And then some horrible person will go, yeah, your dog looks fat and you look fat and your breakfast looks fat. And so you <laughs> put on the armor of cynicism and you start to attack as well because that's clearly the game. And for a while that you feel that that protects you and it makes you look more adult than you are and more knowing than you are. But of course the thing with putting on an armor is at some point, it's you're going to get stuck in it like you can't grow in armor you can't dance in armor and at some point you have to be brave enough to take off that armor of cynicism and be vulnerable and go no I, I want to grow I want to be positive I want to love things I'm not going to be at war anymore with the world I'm going to find good things so that was why even though the story seems to be about being a music journalist in the 1990s it's kind of a parable for the power that we all have now and how we choose to use it do you um 
do you care what the reviews of the film are like? I mean, are you one of the, because I mean, I have, I have this thing that, I mean, I've, you know, written, I haven't written as many books as you have. I've written, well, actually I've probably written a bunch of books. It's just, they're very low key. And uh, I can, they've had, some of them have had very nice reviews and, um, occasionally there'll be a, you know, a nasty one. I don't remember any of the nice ones. I mean, people have said lovely things. You were very kind about a book that I wrote recently. All lovely, all gone out of my head. All I remember is the, uh, is the bad things that people say. So are you at all worried about uh, reading reviews of this thing, which you've put your heart and soul into, and uh, do you care? Well, I know that the reviews, so it's, it's already come out in America and the reviews there have generally been really positive. I think we're like 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I won't read them. Uh, a, it does you no good at all. Like it's just, you don't want to, you know, your head is what you have to live with for the rest of your life. And you have to make sure what voices you have in your head. And you just have to make sure that you don't have other people's voices. And once you've read a bad review, you've got like a little golem set up in your head of this person criticizing you. And then you read another bad review and there's another one. And that's where you will lose your focus and you will just get lost because you will spend your time. I was talking to Chris Addison, the writer from Veep and Think of It. And he was going, when we were talking about reviews and, and also people trolling you online, he was like, there was a point where I was playing with my kids and teaching them to ride a bike. And I was having an argument in my head with a troll that had a go at me two weeks ago. And I was literally having an hour-long conversation with him, with him in my head, trying to prove him wrong. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't present in my actual life. I'm arguing with someone who's probably forgotten me now. And this could go on for years and I need to stop. So I, I, I purposely don't read the reviews. And also, I could write a better, not, not to be wanky to everybody else, but I could write a better review of that film than anyone else because I know exactly what the good things are in it and I know exactly what the bad things are in it. So I could write a definitive review of it. In fact, didn't Nabokov write a review of Lolita at one point that he published in like the third edition, I think? Catelyn, it's entirely possible you're a much smarter and better read person than I am. I have absolutely no idea. If you say it's true, then, I, then, then I'm willing to believe you. Apparently he did, but I think in the third edition, like he'd read all the reviews for Lolita, which were a mixed bag because a lot of people were like, this is immoral. And other people were going, obviously, this is incredible writing. And, uh, and he wrote a review, which uh, was about 4,000 word review of his own book in the third edition, just going, here's all the things you didn't notice. <laughs> here's all the stuff I was doing that was really clever that you fools ignored. I quite like that as a vibe. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Is movie writing is that is that the kind of the the the, the forward path for you? Do you? Have you have you been seduced by the movie industry? Yeah, it's it's so it and like you know this was the first script I ever wrote. It was the first film I ever made, and I learned 
so much in the making of it like kind of the, the only sort of thing that I brought to it when I was writing it was just that I basically had I'd, I'd always wanted to make movies but I'd looked at the movies that there were and I was just like I can't make movies because all the stories that are told are about a teenage boy who has a magical power that is the force and he will meet some robots and he will blow up a Death Star and I can't write something like that so I guess I will never make a movie or it's about gangsters like you know or it's about the CIA operatives that are sexy and can do kung fu I can't write something like that so I guess I can't make a movie and then I just had this revelation quite late in life really sort of 32 33 of going okay you're not over there that's not what you're gonna do you need to go over here and look at all the kind of movies that aren't being made and stories that aren't being told and that's your area like kind of where things haven't been done write a list of all the things that you want to see in a film and that's the way to make a film all the things that would just make your eyes feel refreshed the things that would make your heart sing as a girl as someone who's working class who's someone who's bigger and that's that's how to that's how you're going to make stuff you're going to do the things that haven't been done before you can go and find some taboos and break them go and shed some light on some secrets go and do something that makes girls who don't usually get to have their stories told stand there and go I feel seen I feel normal um because that's what I found when I, I wrote my books when I wrote how to be a woman just meeting doing signings where there would be literally thousands of people queuing up for four hours and just girls over and over again sometimes crying just going I just feel normal for the first time in my life when I read your stuff like kind of I feel seen I feel okay with myself and I I was like okay that's my job I like this I can do this so now I've totally got the bug now I'm working on the on the next film now I've got two or three projects lined up um that I just now I know that things are supposed to happen in movies it all seems quite easy <laughs> can you tell us anything about what the I mean have the studios come to you saying we've got a spy movie that we, we want you to write or we've got a space movie that we want you to do yeah I got I got offered uh, uh, a lot of big things that other writers took but like I can't work on other people's stuff I just realized there's no point in trying to do that like it's all got to be my stuff uh I don't want to I know the punch-up money is great, but I, that's not what I want to do. It's always going to be my story. So, yes, I'm working on three different projects at the moment that are all very, very different. My next one is sci-fi. I realised that um, uh, the reason that I've always hated sci-fi is because it's always dystopian. It's always about how <laughs> terrible. I like, it's always, technology is so bad. And I was like, well, that's balls. Technology is brilliant. We are up to our tits in our love of technology. Why doesn't ever anyone ever write something about how progress and technology is amazing? So the next one is a, a cheerful utopian sci-fi movie. Did you have quite a positive experience? Of the, there's been a lot of stuff about how, you know, how grim the film industry is in terms of it's, you know, it's treatment of women working within the industry, the incre you know, incredible imbalances within it. I think everyone's had to do a bit of soul searching in the last few years. Did you find it positive and welcoming or did you find it you know uh in any way a hostile environment i have been so lucky i think i might have had a unique experience because i was so tessa rotten she was at film four took me out for dinner about 10 years ago and went you should write movies that was before i'd even written a book and i'm reading the book at the moment uh humankind by rutger bergman that's all about how if you tell humans that you have positive expectations of them, they will really respond to that better than anything else. So just this woman who, who ran Film 4 at the time and had made all these incredible movies going, you will write movies, just rewired my head. And I was like, oh, okay, I will make movies. And so she hooked me up with Monumental, which was uh, Deborah Hayward and Alison Owen, who'd formed their production company, who'd just been the two female powerhouses in British movie making. And so they 
I'm sure there was probably some shit along the way, but they totally shielded it from me. They are so pro-woman. They are just like, these are the stories that need to be made. We're going to get you a female director. We had the, the most female and LGBTQ uh, crew that we'd ever had. It was just this huge, big positive thing of like, it's women. It's going to be positive. It's going to be amazing. Um, and it's, it, I have literally haven't had even a moment where I was made to feel uncomfortable or unwelcome or, or one of those moments where you have, oh my God, no, I'm the only one with tits in the room. This is uncomfortable. They just made the whole thing a dream. So, um, can you just can you tell me what your own favourite films are? Because having watched the movie now, I'm, the thing I'm thinking of is that, okay. So I don't know this. What are your favourite films? What are the things that you go back to? Well, I wrote a column about this about ten years ago, where I realised that like when you look at a list of the hundred greatest movies ever made, um, they're all things that I've either not watched because I have no interest in them, or I've watched and just gone, oh, that's a bit sour. They're always <laughs> they're always films by men. No offence, no, no, but there was about men, about men, and it's usually many must die in order for the <laughs> men to have their moment of revelation or get their shit done. It's always yeah. gangsters, it's always spies, it's always kind of, it's really brutal, it's really uncomfortable. I watched The Godfather for the first time, and, uh, you know, it's, it's good. But my favourite scene was the one where Marlon Brando, right at the end, has to look after his grandchildren for 10 minutes in the garden. And he has a heart attack and dies. And I was like, that is so men. <laughs> He's able to run this massive crime empire, but you give him a toddler for two minutes and he'd literally <laughs> rather die than play a game with him. Um, so, but then I realised that if you look at the list of the 100 greatest musicals ever made, suddenly it's completely different. They, they almost always female-centred. They're almost mm. always the female characters, rather than being kind of silent, sexy women who appear at the top of the staircase and everyone's like, oh, in a Scorsese movie, and they just get to be mysterious and sexy and powerful without saying anything. The girls in, in musicals are usually, usually they're working class, usually they're a bit odd, usually they're a bit downtrodden, but they have an incredible talent. So they just do stuff. Like, kind of, they come on and they win the world because they can sing, because they can dance, because they're funny. Um, and they're, they're incredibly female-centric movies and they're always really positive and they're really beautiful and they're about oddballs. I'm like, I need it. They're written, you know, you can see like kind of just all the, um, the gay writers and artists who are involved in that in the whole aesthetic of the whole thing and it's completely different and no one ever dies in a musical, rarely. And if they do, it's in a jazz ballet <laughs> sequence, which is the only kind of violence that I'm, I'm willing to tolerate. So, <laughs> so my, my whole aesthetic is, is musicals, I realise. That's what I love I, because it's, it's female, it's gay, it's positive. Women have talent. It's funny. And you watch performances like, if you watch a Judy Garland performance in like, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis or Easter Parade, mm. it's such a modern comedy performance. Like kind of, it's just, it, you know, you could put her in Friends now as a guest star and there would be no bumps in the whole thing. She's just, she's got such a modern, like, she's such a brilliant comedian. No one ever really talks about it as much as they should. And yeah, does the, 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 I think Meet Me in St. Louis is probably my favourite film of all time because they're just sisters and nothing really happens in that movie they might be going to move to New York and then in the end they don't but like the, the interplay between the sisters the bickering kind of like the girls who fancy the boys next door and just constantly talking about whether they can handle all the boys at the party and stuff it's just like that's that's what I love I love comfortable women with amazing talents just being being funny and having a positive experience like why aren't there more movies like that with my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high up on my head I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead with his light brown derby and his bright green tie he was quite the handsomest of men I started to yen so I counted to ten then I 
my my daughter is a, a huge uh, Judy Garland fan, and as a result of a project that she was working on, introduced me to Margaret O'Brien. Yes. And yeah, so exactly that thing that you just did, that was exactly what I did. It was, Dad, this is Margaret O'Brien. And it was like, really? Yes. Wow. And uh, no, I feel the same way. I think uh, Meet Me and Sir Louis is just the most amazing thing. And, and uh, in her career, she's like 26 inches tall. She's like a <laughs> tiny doll. She was born nine minutes ago. And she's so funny. She's so on her shit. Like she just eats up the camera. And you're like, my God, this child is blowing everybody else off the screen. And like Hairspray is another, the, the remake, the musical remake of Hairspray. It's like a vastly underrated film. I mean, for the starters, I didn't, I'm going to start getting furious now, but I didn't understand why Zac Efron didn't have a massive career off the back of Hairspray because he'd taken the persona that he'd he'd put together in all the high school musical uh, Disney films just being really hot and able to sing and he just parodies the whole thing so funnily and so cleverly and so knowingly in Hairspray and I just thought that they were going to go on and make a series of brilliant adult movies based on Zac Efron being able to do all this stuff do all this comedy be really knowing about how hot he was and nothing happened they just put him in Baywatch it's like don't put him in Baywatch make him dance I'd like to say that there is no greater Zac Efron fan in the world than me I love I'm I'm absolutely Absolutely, I'm obsessed with Zac Efron. Jason Isaacs was in a lift with Zac Efron and forced Zac Efron to record a video message for me saying, hello, Mark, because I think he's the, he's the new Gene Kelly. I think he's, I mean, if you look, particularly if you look at um, High School Musical 3, yes. that thing when they're dancing in the, in, in the yard and they're jumping up onto the rolling tyre, and they're doing it like this is completely, you know, you're going, I actually don't understand the gravity behind doing that thing. The, the high school musical musicals are really well put together. Well, there's just like um, uh, 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 when Breaking Free. I think it's such a great anthem, like kind of like I didn't understand why that didn't cross it. When I keep trying to play it when friends come over, they're just like, it's from high school musical. I'm like, this is a classic. Your kids, when this comes on a disco in 20 years' time, are going to be crying and doing the dance move. These are like, yeah. like these are the big moments in our history. Oh, I'm so glad you love Zac Efron. I don't, he is Gene Kelly. I oh, no, I think I think he's I think he's amazing. I, I I once caused a scene in a cinema because they were racking a Zac Efron movie wrong, and I wasn't seeing all of his hair because they racked it up at the thing, and I was really cross because I had paid twelve pounds to see all of Zac Efron, um, including his hair. And it, he's got the most he's got the most amazing hair, and apparently he's really really lovely. And you know, uh, but he boy can that guy dance. But that's the thing, like when a Gene Kelly comes along now, or like I just think of all the kind of the, the kind of characters that you would see in musicals in like sort of 40s and 50s that you don't get now, the kind of roles like Donald O'Connor, like kind of now if you're kind of like the ugly best friend, like kind of who's the funny one who's a bit trampled on, like you're usually like a schlumpy kind of sort of Seth Rogeny type who's just a bit hateful and talentless. Whereas in those days, if you were the schlumpy best friend or the schlumpy guy, you could backflip off a wall and yeah. be really funny. Like kind of, why don't we have like, kind of, you know, there was always like the kind of the funny Jewish best friend that the girl would have, who was like sort of supposedly the more ugly one, but they would have all the best lines. Um, I want to see those dynamics. They make me more excited. And, you know, Donald O'Connor that in, uh, you know, make him laugh. Not only is he's doing all that unassisted, but afterwards had to go and lie down for three days because they made him do it like three. And I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's literally running up the side of a wall and flipping over and then carrying on. While just, laughing, which is exhausting. If you're just sitting down and laughing, you are knackered at the end of a good chuckle sesh. So mm. how you would do that, defying gravity off the wall, like I know, yes, I mean, obviously singing in the rain is a, is a massive favourite of mine as well. Um, yeah. 
It's so, well. The, I mean, honestly, I'm just I'm, I'm delighted to I'm delighted to be able to talk about Zac Efron and High School Musical so enthusiastically <laughs> without getting laughed at because uh, no, it's. A, have you Big met anyone who shares your love? It's like a fan club within the industry. Well, my fa- my whole family absolutely love them. My my wife reviewed uh, High School Musical three for Sight and Sound magazine, and uh, there was never a prouder moment. You know, they were there at the you know because it, that was the one that actually you know that, that went into the cinema. And uh, and you know, and every now and then people say to me, you know, is that thing with you and High School Musical is that, are you having us on? And in that same way that you that as you said, cynicism is easy, and cynicism will. Be, but if you say you love something, that's when you get into trouble. Yes. If you just say, I just love this thing. I mean, I know you said people love enthusiasm, but it's also the thing that, um, that you get sneered at. If you, say, if you admit, I love that film. I love Zac Efron. I think he's great. Well, that's the thing. Once you get into fandom, like kind of like there are rooms that it's not possible for you to be in anymore and you just need to go and find the other fans and you just need to go and find that flock. I love it when there's like a boy band in town and you just see the teenage girls out on the street, this kind of murmuration of starling girls just kind of wandering off down to the down to the arena to go and love their boys and following them everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, you have you have to go and join a pack once you, once you cross over into fandom because in polite conversation, I was thinking about this as well, like enthusiasm I think is generally seen as a working class trait. Like Generally, the more the posher people are uh, and the more well-established their, their families are through generations, the more you're just supposed to be kind of like, oh, that was quite diverting. Whereas kind of you know, <laughs> like, like it's sort of it's, it's sort of not cool. It's declasse to be enthusiastic about stuff. And the lower you go down the socioeconomic scale, the more people are just like, this is brilliant because often culture is all you have. Often all you have is musical words. Like if you're stuck in a house with nothing and you can go nowhere, all you've got is words, you know, and have it sitting in a room with someone who's going, have you heard this thing? It's brilliant. That's going to fill two hours. It's like your equivalent of being able to go on holiday. You just sit around and play someone a record or make someone watch a movie and you have a holiday in culture because you cannot go anywhere else. You can't afford to be cynical, you know, if you're poor or if you're working class or if your life traps you in any way, because uh, because then what joy is that your life is just one flat monotone of just nothingness whereas if you're going to yachts in can and having fabulous meals like then you can be a bit like oh i suppose that was quite pleasant because everything is pleasant your life is just this kind of uh. here and now it's time for celebration i finally figured out yeah most starstruck by who have you met and literally gone to you know to pieces well i mean obviously the story's changed now with his vibe but when i was first asked if i would like to meet morrissey in the early 90s he wasn't as racist as he is now like there were rumors that he was racist he was quite flaggy you know he he liked a union jack you know he'd, he'd written a couple of dodgy songs but we still didn't know if that was if that was just Morrissey being arched or not. So he was still generally seen as a good thing. And obviously he'd been in the space. Um, and so I was asked if I would like to meet Morrissey in an event. And, uh, and he was standing there waiting for me to go over and be introduced to him. And I was just like, nah. And they were like, he's waiting for you now. He's, he was sort of putting his arm out to kind of welcome me over. And I just sat on the chair and held the bottom of it and went, no, I can't meet Morrissey. I've got nothing to say to him. 
he will have nothing to say to me. Like, it just won't work. There's no point in me going near him. It just won't work. And I've interviewed so many people over the years that I love. And I re- and I went, I've gone through such an arc of responses to meeting people that I love. At the beginning, when I first started interviewing bands, I thought, when you interview a band, you've got to make them be your mate and love you. So rather than actually interviewing them and asking questions, I'd just be try and be amazing so that they would adore me. And that didn't work. <laughs> then I thought I'd step it up a gear. By the time I got to 18, I was like, when I interview people that I like, I should try and sleep with them. I should try and have sex with them. That would be an, you know, an amusing experience, and why not? Um, that sometimes worked, but generally it was <laughs> not the satisfying. What I didn't realise is that like, if you think someone's a genius, the genius is not in their penis they don't have penis, like kind of, you're just literally having sex with a man. Like the music doesn't come out of him while you're banging him. So that turned out to be quite a disappointing experience. Then I went through a phase of being very sympathetic to famous people that I loved. It was like kind of the pressures of fame. Like it must be so weird being you. So I did a radio show with John Peel, who I loved. And, uh, and he was being so, because we were there playing records and then chatting between the records on air. And, uh, and every time a record came on, he would try and chat to me. And I'd just be like, no, I'm just going to give you his face, John. And then you try and talk about something else. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I just want to just leave you be. <laughs> Obviously thought I was negging him off. And, uh, and in my head, I was like, I'm playing a long game. Like, next time I meet him, I'll be a bit less frosty. And then the third time I meet him, we'll be like, old pals. And then he died three weeks later. So I realized never play it cool with John Peel because that might be your only chance to be his friend. Um, and now I just think generally when I meet people that I like, I just kind of want to leave them alone. <laughs> I know I'm not good in that situation. I think it's just best to love people from afar. I'd far rather write there 5,000. Now these days when I get offered interviews with people that I love, I'm like, I'd rather write a 3,000 word opinion piece about why they're great or follow them around on tour and observe them and see what they're like, but never actually talk to them. Because I don't yeah. actually have any interesting questions to ask. I just So when I did, the, I did an amazing piece with Lady Gaga about 10 years ago where she took me to a sex club in Berlin and then we went to the toilets together and it was just this, it was the mad sex club in Berlin. It was just like, there were people having sex in bathtubs and like there was just all kinds of bummery going on everywhere. And me and her British press officer walked in and we both just went, oh my God, everyone's smoking in here. It's <laughs> the first thing we noticed. I cannot tell you what Sodom and Gomorrah was going on around us. We were like, oh my God, <laughs> light up a circuit, amazing. And um Usually when you go out with someone famous, they go into a booth in the corner and their people go and get the drinks. Gaga, who was just wearing, she'd just come off stage, a bra, pants, fishnets, and a £20,000 Alexander McQueen cape, uh, just walked over to the bar, turned around to everyone in this bar, and just went, what are you all drinking? Got everyone's orders in and then reached into her bra and bought out like a fist of euros and slammed them down on the table, had brought everyone around, then went in the corner. She was smoking my fags. We were having a bit of a dance. She got really, really hammered. And then at one point she went, do you want to come to the toilet with me? At this point I was 33 and a mother of two. And I was like, I have not done drugs for 20 years. I don't even know what they're called now. Maybe people take them in a different way. This could be so embarrassing. But if Lady Gaga asks you to go to the toilet, you've got to go to the toilet with her. So we went to this VIP toilet and we sort of closed the door and I stared at her like, what are we going to do? What are we going to take? Am I going to lose my mind? And she went, now just notice you're wearing a jumpsuit with a zip at the back and they're really hard to get off on your own. So I thought I'd unzip you so you could have a wee. And I was like, well, that's very thoughtful, but that now means that I have to take this jumpsuit off and sit here in my bra on the toilet, weeing in front of you whilst chatting. That was quite an conversation. And at the end of it, I looked around and there was no toilet paper. So I was like, well, I'm going to do to wipe. And she just handed me a lovely fluffy towel and went, there you go. I said, wow, okay, this is how the high rollers live. They wipe their bums on towels. And then I, so I wiped on the towel, popped it to the side. Then she sat down the toilet and she didn't take her pants off. 
she just pulled them to one side and pissed through her fishnets. And then I offered her the towel in a kind of, we're wiping our bums on towels now. And she just went, I'm okay, honey. And just did a little shake and shook all the drops off. And then we stood up and went back into the club again. And uh, that, and I don't think I asked her a single question through that entire 12 hour interview experience. I just watched her have a piss. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, it, it's funny because, uh, I, I, I was going to, I was going to tell you that, you know, I was once starstruck by Liza Minnelli, but frankly, after that, I, I just think I should just retire hurt because that is, that's, that's, there's nothing, there's nothing I can say that can top, that can top. What was she like? What was she like? Did you do talking? Were her eyes focused? Like where, where oh, was, was she scale of... Okay, so basically, this is so this is a, this is so much smaller scale. I interviewed her with a group of journalists after um, uh, whichever, not chorus line, which, which, whichever musical that she made, um, which wasn't very good. Uh, anyway, uh, and uh, it was one of those things that a group interview. She sits one place, and everyone else sits somewhere. And I walked into the room. I knew where she was going to sit, so I deliberately sat next to it. So I was next to Liza Minnelli, and then they said, "Ladies and gentlemen, you know, we're just going to bring Miss Minnelli in." And they opened the door, and in came Liza Minnelli, and it was Liza Minnelli in really act- no, no, just walked in, but but you know, lighting up the room like, but just walking very quietly, and it was Liza Minnelli, and she sat down, and she must have been like, a, you know, this far away from me, and I was so completely bewildered by the fact that it actually was Liza Minnelli. I had a question prepared. I asked her the question and she started talking and she looked at me and, and, and this is absolutely true. Um, she looked at me and I was looking at her and as I was looking at her, I completely involuntarily reached out and prodded her arm to, to see that it was, she, she was actually there. And here's the worst thing. Here's the worst thing. I did it. I went like this. I just went, I went like that. And then I went like that. And the best thing is she just carried on like it hadn't happened. Presumably because it wasn't the first time. Yeah. I and can I, imagine. I, it was like being in the presence of a space alien because I couldn't believe it was actually Liza Minnelli. No. So it's not as- your brain isn't wired up to deal with these things because the, the thing about meeting someone really famous that you're a fan of is it's an incredibly unequal relationship, obviously, but like you know everything about them and they have been in your life and you've imagined conversations with them and you you they have made you cry. You have been on, you're like Sebastian in The Never Ending Story. You've read their story and you've been in it with them and you've been crying and you've agonised with them all the way through their journey of their life. And then when you and you meet them and it feels like you're meeting an old friend and you kind of, you walk towards them with the same chemicals going off in your body. You've got dopamine and serotonin going off all over the place, like, like when you're meeting a family friend or, you know, your mother, but they don't know you at all. And in that moment where they look at you, and you're looking at them with love and absolute knowledge and they're looking at you like you're the millionth person they've met today even if they're being lovely and pro and on their game there's something that just shatters inside you and it's really hard to then get a conversation going with them because you've got because all your chemicals are clashing at that point you thought that they knew you your your body and brain has told you that you know this person but you just know them they don't know you and the moment they look at you like a stranger something collapses in you and it is virtually impossible to have a normal conversation with someone that you properly love and admire. I, 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 I don't think I've ever had that happen. That was, that's been the big knowledge that I found over the years of having access to all these famous people, being able to interview them that like it's just, now these days I just don't do it because I just can't go through that too many more times. It's just too upsetting. Yeah. Well, listen, we should probably start to bring this to a close. I'm taking up most of it. I wanted to ask you one final thing. You know, you have a, you have a public persona and we've been talking about, um, 
uh, when uh, you know you went through a period of you know I, I understand fame must be difficult and all the rest of it. I have to say you you don't seem to find anything difficult, which is admirable. When you when you're with your your family and friends. But for a start, what do your family and friends call you? Because you've got, you've had n- numerous different monikers. So what do they call you? Yes. So I was christened Catherine with a C after my grandmother, and then I was reading a book on numerology because I read every book in the library, and I was deeply into the the wiggy kind of psychic stuff for a while. And I read a book in numerology that said that my name Catherine Moran would mean that I would never have fame and fortune. That if I could change the letters in my name, then that would make me maybe successful so I just kept trying different names and working out their numerology total um and Catelyn Moran uh which is Catelyn was the name of a, of a character in a Jimmy Cooper book and uh and I tried that and it sounded suitably suitably Gaelic so I, I quite like the idea of that but then years later after using it as my name Caitlin, Catelyn Moran I realized that you actually pronounce that name Caitlin Moran this is the problem of being an autodidact who learns everything through books you just pronounce shit wrong all the time like paradigm that was paradigm for me for years yeah. Uh, it, it just uh, um, hyperbolic, like kind of uh, just kind of all these words that you pronounce incorrectly. So I pronounced my own name incorrectly for a good five years, but all my friends I, were Kate. But I've always, I've always referred to you as Catelyn because that was how I was introduced to you. Exactly, as- you had it, or you had the audio, but like kind of if it's written down, and mainly I'm a, I'm a, a you know, a printed person. Like I generally don't. This has been lovely, and I wanted to do this because like I love you, and I wanted to do this, but I generally don't do like TV or radio because I just like writing. I feel so comfortable and happy when I'm writing. I'm, what about the words, man? It's 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 interesting. My 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 wife always quoted this thing to me, which is never laugh at somebody for mispronouncing a word because it means they read it. And uh, and I thought, you know, because I thought it was just the most brilliant piece of advice. And it wasn't until she said it to me that I realised, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it means. Never laugh at somebody for mispronouncing something because it means they read it. And, it's and also, I, there's also an additional sad resonance to that because it means that they read it and they didn't know anybody else who was reading these kind of words. They weren't having those kind of discussions. It means that you come from somewhere where you were the only person who was reading stuff like that and knowing words like that and you never got to discuss it until you finally came to London, where people had gone to Oxford or Cambridge, and then they took the piss out of you. So it's, it, it, it's a <laughs> it tells you all the backstory that you need to know about someone. As soon as you hear someone mispronounce like a word like that, you know what their backstory is. It's, it's such a show, don't tell. Oh, wow. Listen, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Um, uh, when, does the, when does the movie open in the, in the UK? When can we get to see it? It'll be uh, on Amazon Prime. Um, and I, I'm really like, I know that a lot of people like to have a, obviously we wanted to have a theater opening, but the, the pandemic has, uh, has put a stop to that to all fun forever. Uh, but I, from the very beginning, I had been arguing that I wanted to, I would prefer it to be streamed because I think it's the kind of movie that if you're a teenage girl, you're just going to want to be able to sit in your bedroom and watch it. Like kind of, I, I think it's a real barrier to access often to go to the cinema, particularly, you know, and again, you know, for the, for the kind of women who are going to get to see it, it's either going to be women of my age, you, if they were going to get to the cinema, would have to get a babysitter, they would have to plan that, it would have to be a big outing, um, you know, or it's going to be teenage girls who, again, might not have the money, might not be allowed out. And I think for women, just being able to sit at home and watch a movie like this is the best way to watch it. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. I, I, you know, I, I really hope that it finds a, a wide audience. As you said, it's already opened in America and it sounds like, a, like it's already been embraced. So congratulations. I look forward to watching your science fiction movie, um, your utopian science fiction movie, as opposed to dystopian science fiction movie. And come, please come back on the show. You know, when, when we've opened up again, when this is all behind us and, uh, you know, uh, please come on the live show because it'd be, be very nice to do this in person. But it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. 
Oh, it's been so lovely. Thank you so much for an hour. I haven't felt lonely. It's been absolutely lovely. (laughs) The irrepressible Catelyn Moran discussing her new film, How to Build a Girl, which you'll be able to see very soon. Thanks so much for listening to this Kermode on Film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, then remember to subscribe. As I said before, do go over to YouTube, search for the BFI channel or MK3D and check out the online video version of the show. Also, if you're interested in more video content, then why not go to our Patreon page where there's loads and loads of exclusive extras, including video stuff that you can't see anywhere else. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, tell your friends, stay safe and keep watching the skies. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.